0: Testing, testing. That's better. I <laughs> want to switch. Don, is better. Ready? Welcome to Christian Life Academy. We are working our way through the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. We have made it all the way to Chapter Two, and we are now going through it again. Chapter Two, and we're working our way through um, basically um, the it's essentially the attributes of God, and. Um, uh, the Confession does a very great job of succinctly summing up who God is. Um, but it's so much and it's so uh, compact that it deserves a little bit of unpacking so that we can cover some of these characteristics. And so that's what we've been doing is working our way through And um, in paragraph one. And we ended last week uh, with God is Almighty. And so this week uh, we pick back up with God is... Infinite. If you see from the outline there that uh, this is the attributes of God, and then we're talking about the extent of its attributes, and then His attributes, and then that's what we're looking at now. He is in every way infinite. Well, um, you know, first of all, first of all, it's it's God is in every way infinite, and uh, this reflects certainly the most basic difference between our finite reality and God's infinite reality. Um, that's really easy to say, much harder to grapple with and much harder to comprehend. Um, God can't be measured. Uh, That makes him infinite. He cannot, he can be, or he is in all places at all times. Uh, He's omnipresent. Um, That is infinite. Um, He is, uh, I'm sorry, God's infinite character. You see God's infinite characteristic applies to all of his other characteristics. So we're unable to measure the extent to which they apply to God. In other words, Uh, immense, almighty, holy. So he is infinite in his holiness. He is infinite in his uh, almightiness. He is infinite in all of these areas. Um, Certainly, this represents a distinction between um, what we can think of and what the reality is. Um, In fact, let me go to the next slide so I don't steal my own thunder there. (laughs) Because uh, he's beyond any limit of any type that we can really comprehend. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Uh, because God is infinite, and personal, and fa- in every facet, in every fact, and in every moment in the universe, we are face to face, inescapably, from God Himself. That should inspire both awe and fear in us. Um, because th- there is no place where God is not. There is nothing that. Uh, is beyond him. That there's nothing that he does not comprehend. Everything that you, can, uh, that you think of, everything that you touch, everything that you see, everything that you hear about, uh, God is involved in every one of them. None of them are happening without his will being done. Uh, he is in control of them all. He is infinite in the fact that he is almighty. Nothing is beyond him. Nothing is outside of his will. He is infinite in his will, his will cannot be measured. His will is beyond us. The entire existence of this universe, no matter how big it is, no matter how many stars, planets, everything that exists in this, in this universe is not even close to how infinite God is. He's beyond all of that. It is nothing. Uh, science fiction uh, through now the millennia has <laughs> uh, supposed what if... We are some of the Greek philosophers. What if we are, but uh, in our entire world and solar system, as they knew it, uh, what if we are nothing but in a speck, uh, on a flea, on a dog, in a greater universe? That was what their their thinking was. So you understand, because, of course, the idea is, is that there is no way for us to comprehend and to get our arms around the infiniteness of existence. We, don't, we can't possibly comprehend it. And although um, what they're saying can't be true according to God's word, the principle of what they're saying is true. And that is that uh, we, are, we are small and insignificant um, in the overall scheme of how infinite God is. So let's look at just a few verses that just reflect some of His uh, the way that God is infinite. Again, I'm reading these verses particularly because they are not footnotes in the Confession. If you notice... Um, when I have the verses on the screen like this, there's no number before them. The number that I usually list there is the footnote in the confession. Uh, so when I have additional verses, sometimes I'll say also, or in this case, I just list the verses because there is no direct foot, footnote uh, verse in the confession to this particular issue. So Job 11, 7 through 9. Canst thou by... So what are we talking about here? This is, this is when... Uh, Job is in, um, is in agony, and he has questioned God by this point, and now God is answering him. He says, canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? It is as high as heaven. What canst thou do? Deeper than hell, what canst thou know? The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. This is, uh, God is beyond what you can measure. He's beyond anything that there exists. That's what, he, that's what that statement is there. Psalm 139, 6 through 10, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high, I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. So the psalmist here is just obviously talking about the fact that God is everywhere. There's nowhere that he can go that escapes from God's presence. Romans 11, 33 through thirty-six. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways past finding out! For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Again, just this idea, here written by Paul, the fact that God is beyond us. He is above and beyond us in every way. We have no way to comprehend him. There is no being, there is nothing in existence that is able to counsel God and to tell him what he should do. Why? He is infinite. He is above them. He is beyond them. Okay. God is most holy. God is most holy. Uh, well, obviously, holiness is God's moral purity, his glorious majesty. Uh, as he is infinite and pure, his holiness is exalted above all of creation. God's holiness is a reflection of all his characteristics. Holiness is a central perfection in God and can be used to describe his other attributes. So we talk about that he's almighty. Well, he's almighty, but he is holy in that. Right? Right? He is infinite. He is holy in that. He is omnipresent. He is holy in that. He is righteous. He is holy in that. Holiness applies to the same as all the other characteristics, to all of God's characteristics. You can't say that he's holy in some respects and still say God's infinite. Does that make sense? You can't say, well, he's mostly holy. Do you see what I'm saying? You, You can't say that. Either God is holy entirely or he is not. Our desire truly is to be holy. We are not holy. Have you sinned? You're not holy. Your goal and your desire is to be holy. That's what you should desire anyway, is to be holy. And we are commanded to be holy as I am holy, right? That's a commandment to us. God is holy entirely. Entirely. Everything that He does, every action that He takes, is holy. Is holy is righteous, is pure, Uh, whichever language or which one of those particular phrases that you want to use. God's word says that God's holiness is his beauty, is his beauty. We'll see that in a second. Leviticus uses holy in connection with the worship of God 87 times, while love is only used twice. Now think about that for a second there, God is love. Is God love? God is love. God is holy, and interestingly enough, when Leviticus is focusing on how the nation of Israel should worship God, they are not focused on the fact that he loves them, they are focusing, he is focusing on the fact that he is holy, that he is deserving of our worship because of his holiness. That's why. That's why it's 87 times to 2. Everything associated with God is holy, his holy mountain, his holy throne, his holy temple, his holy angels, the holy apostles, the holy scriptures, all of these things associated with God are holy. Holy. Scriptures are full of descriptions of God as holy. We'll see some of those. We'll actually see a number of those. Um, This is probably the greatest number of scripture references of any passage in the entire syllabus on the Confession about God being holy. There's a reason for that. Let's keep going. Um, God must be holy to be God. He is separate from his creation by his holiness. All of creation falls short of his holiness. So you think about some of these other religions, particularly Far East religions, who have gods that are not holy, or even Greek mythology, right? The gods are always doing bad things, aren't they? You see them doing the mischief, causing evil for men, pleasuring in causing evil for men. And, and then... Uh, Seeing how man responds to the evil that they bring upon him. It's because they're not holy. They're not holy. They're actually evil. And this is the same that's true of many of those Far East religions whose gods are partially evil. They are not holy. The fact that they are partially evil, they're not holy at all. There is no holiness in them. Holiness is not something you have, like, you either are holy or not holy. We strive to be holy, and when will we be holy? When you're dead. <laughs> when you're dead or glorified, right? Okay, so you say wasn't well, there uh, yeah. Well, okay, yep. If you're <laughs> if the Lord returns and you're and you're glorified and you don't actually die, then you'll be holy. It's when your sanctification is complete. That's when you're holy. Your sanctification is that you're you are set aside, you're sanctified by God. You're working through your sanctification, you're becoming more holy. That's what sanctification is. You're becoming more like Christ. You're becoming more holy. You will never achieve full sanctification in this mortal flesh. Why? Because it's the mortal flesh. When you die, you are glorified, you will no longer sin, you will then be holy. Not still holy to the extent God is holy. Why? He's infinite, you're not infinite. Make sense? You Okay, so you think, well, wait a minute. We won't die then. Won't we be more like God then? Ooh, Careful. When we die, we do not become gods. You will not be omniscient. You will not be omnipresent. You will not be all the characteristics that God is. You will not be infinite. You will still be you in a body. Glorified, but in a body. Can your body be everywhere at once? It's impossible. Christ was not everywhere at once, was he? He was not. He is still not. He is in his body. Can he see all through God the Father and God the Spirit? Yes. But he is someplace. Where is he? Where does the Bible say Christ is? Right hand of the Father. He's at the right hand of the Father. Now, you say, well, if God's everywhere, couldn't he be everywhere? Let's not go down that path right now. (laughs) Let's wait until we get about the doctrine of Christ. But that's a good question. (laughs) All right. All right. Man's holiness is being separated and consecrated to God as the chief end of our existence. God's holiness is directed to himself in his own glory. So our holiness is measured in how close we are to God, right? How much like Christ we are. That's what our goal is. You see this? God is holy in of himself. He is not striving. He is not trying. He is. That's it. God's holiness also reflects his moral purity. Just had to find myself here on my notes. <laughs> his absolute perfection in all aspects of morality. So uh, when we talk about um, morality, and how pure someone's morality is, or how good or bad they are in their morality, um, obviously, this directly relates to holiness. In other words, if you were perfectly holy, your morality would be perfect. This is where, indeed, you have a problem, right? It's, it's you contradicting the morality that God would have you to have, and that is, therefore, sin, so you're not holy. You see this? God's holy anger is not arbitrary, irrational, reactionary, or uncontrollable. It is the most destructive power in the universe and will completely destroy all sin. And we see this called his holy or righteous anger. So this is not the anger that we have, which is always tainted by our own desires. You understand? So, When we are angry about something, even if it's at at sin, it's because we are unhappy about the sin. The purity and the motivation of our anger is not the same as God's holy anger. Why? We taint it with our own thoughts and desires. That's why. As much as we try not to, it's still tainted. Which is why we have to leave vengeance up to God. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It's not ours. Right? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Yeah, well, that, you're stopping us. taking it out of context. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Who is the one who will bring vengeance upon man? God, in his own way. Could he use you? He sure could. But it's not up to you to make the decision to enact vengeance on someone. Do you see this? Now, how has God, by the way, set up for punishment to be done on evildoers. What does he use? What human institution did he establish who's given the sword to punish evildoers? The government. He did not say, uh, guess what? Anybody who could have a sword can enact justice. Why? Because you won't do it right. You won't do it right. I don't even know what the percentage is. Let's be generous and say half the time the government doesn't do it right. <laughs> That's generous, I think. I think it's less than that that they do it right. But you understand, right? This, this idea that it is up to a lone ranger, a vigilante, to enact God's justice is completely contrary to his word. Never justified. Ever justified. Never. It's not Okay. So you see something bad, and I'm just going to take that guy out. No, that's wrong. That's sin. Horrible sin. Now you're acting as God. You're taking his judgment into your own hands. He did not give you that authority. He didn't give you that authority. And by the way, if he wants to enact justice on someone, can he enact justice on someone? Yes, he can. And yes, he will. But it might not be the way that we expect it. Can we agree with that? that many times it's not the way we expect it, is it? Things happen. We think they're horrible. It seems like the person gets away with it. Right? Don't you see that sometimes? Yeah. And so then what happens? Do we just go out there and take care of business? No. It's not up to us. It's up to God. And the reason that he can enact that justice is because he is holy. He is holy. So his justice will be holy, it will be righteous, it will be morally pure, it will be correct. God displays his holiness against all unrighteousness with affliction, pestilence, slaughter, war, drought, plagues, economic collapse, etc. Hmm. Look. We have to be careful what we pray for. See, it is really easy for us to pray for what we want. When I'm, you, you know I'm not just talking about in general here, right? I'm talking specifically about this point. Affliction, pestilence, slaughter, war, drought, plagues, economic collapse, etc. We see all these things in the scripture. All these things. We know many verses about pain and suffering that individuals endure. That's God. Is it always God's wrath? No, it's not always God's wrath, right? Sometimes it's to test somebody. It's to prove somebody. Sometimes it's to bring them back to him. It's to draw them closer to him. It's to test their faith. Job, test their faith, right? See, many references to this in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But God uses these things to, aff- to afflict people with his judgment. It, but what that's still, all those things, those bad things that we're talking about here, those are still God pulling his punch. He's not quite giving it as hard as he could. That's what he's pulling his punch, right? He's pulling his punch. He's not hitting it as hard as he can. Do you think that when a hurricane hits the United States, God is not in control of this? How about a tsunami? How about a forest fire? How about an earthquake? It's not just the United States. Let me take that out of there. Make sure you're not thinking that way. How about war? How about famine? Pestilence, that's disease, plagues. You think God's not in control of all that? He is in control. So what we have to be careful of, and this is where I started to go with this, is how we pray for those things. God does not bring those things for no reasons. He does not allow those things to happen for no reason. There is a reason. What we can pray is that his will be done through it. What we can pray is that people will be drawn to him through it. That he will be glorified through it. That his kingdom will be served through it. That his will will be done. Because his will might be that people get wiped out. Is it not his will that that earthquake hit Syria and Turkey? Those earthquakes and all those people died? That is God's will. We don't understand why. And he hasn't told us. So that means we don't have to understand why. What about forest fire? What about landslides? What about flooding? What about tornadoes? What about all those things? Is God not in control of the weather? Is that one place that he can't get a hold of? No, he can. And here's the reality. We all deserve that. Mankind deserves to be afflicted by God. Mankind deserves punishment for the sins they've committed. And they will receive it eternally. It is only God's grace that does not take you in death immediately when you commit your first sin. For some of you, this is memory, for some of you, you'll see it in the future. But you remember when your children got to the age where they knew what they were doing and they purposefully disobeyed you? Like maybe when they disobeyed you and gave you that look, like they're going to see what you're going to do about it. Brand says this morning, he said, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> said, but do you remember this? That you, everybody, if you're a parent, you know that happened, right? And when that happened, what? Grandparents Grand <laughs> too. When that happens, right at that moment, you you do have a little bit of a desire to punish them. Why? Well, first of all, that's what you've been taught because that's what the scripture says. So, they are supposed to be punished with spankings. This is what the Bible says. Do not spare the rod. Though they cry, they will not die. You remember this? Yeah, kids hate that verse. <laughs> Though they cry, they will not die. The point is, is that you know that that belligerent disobedience deserves punishment. Now, do you do it every time? Probably not, Right? And probably you'd try to figure out how to handle that and how to deal with that and how to teach them through the thing and all that stuff. We're not going down that path far. It's just the point that when someone is directly disobedient to you, who should be obedient to you, you feel that desire to punish them because that is such an offense to you. that bothers you. Well, God is holy. He is holy. And when his creation, that which he created then does that belligerence to him, can he not wipe us out of existence? He could. It is only his mercy that continues to allow us to exist. Look, if it was up to God, none of us would be here. And guess what? It is up to God. But his mercy has allowed us to continue to live that he would be glorified. That's the reason. The point is that he would be glorified. Now you say, well, how is he glorified if some evil person, you know, think of the worst person you can think of in history, some evil person does all this evil stuff, how is that glorifying God? Hmm. Have you ever wondered about that? How is that glorifying God? It's part of his plan. How? Okay, so without getting too controversial on Sermon Audio, Let's go back and say that there, were, there was a leader of a nation, and there have been many, so you can put whoever you want in your mind on this one, and that leader was a bad leader, and he wiped out groups of people. There have been plenty of those. Saddam Hussein, right? He's one. There's been others. But he wipes out groups of people. So here's the question for you. Were those groups of people innocent? Were they innocent? Nope. Not a single one of them. Did they deserve death for the sins they committed against God? Yes, they did. Now, was he right to do it? No. He wasn't. He wasn't. But God allowed that to happen, didn't he? Whatever one you're thinking of, God allowed that to happen. Why? Because he can bring those afflictions on people when he wants to. He can allow that to happen. He can allow it to happen. And look, I mean, we've enjoyed a comfort in this country for a couple of centuries, haven't we, basically? I mean, you have to go back probably to the Civil War to think of a great conflict here at home, a war, and it was between ourselves. You say, well, yeah, but we've had terror attacks, 9 11. True. Absolutely. Not diminishing that. But do you think that that equals even close the number of people that were killed in the earthquakes in Syria and Turkey? It's not close, it's a tenth. It's a tenth. Ten times more killed in Syria and Turkey than earthquakes. God's mercy has extended to our nation. You think, well, yeah, there's so many things that are going so wrong. If we got what God deserved, we'd be wiped out. And we might get wiped out. You know, there are many historians, true historians, who will tell you that God has blessed this nation possibly more than any other nation except for Israel in the time of David and Solomon. A lot of smart guys that you've heard of. And they will say that. God has blessed the United States of America in ways he has not blessed any other nation. The longevity of peace that we've enjoyed. The standard of living that we've enjoyed. The freedoms that we've enjoyed. Unparalleled. What have we done with it? Squandered it. Haven't we? We squandered it. What do we deserve? What do any people deserve? God's wrath. God's holy. So when the bad stuff happens, don't think, well, this isn't fair. Yeah, it is. It's fair. In fact, what's fair is it would be worse. Whatever is happening, what's fair would be worse. Say, well, are you serious? you think if there was a nuclear war and we got wiped out, that's going to be fair? I think that's going to be mercy. And you should too. Because God does not owe us anything, does he? You can think, take whatever particular subject is your passion for how America is sinning. We deserve punishment over that say, well, yeah, but what about all the believers that we have in the United States? What's the Bible say? The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. Or the rain is withheld from the righteous and the unrighteous. Both. Christ pointed out that in the Old Testament, when there was a drought and a famine in the land, it didn't just happen to the Gentiles, it happened to the Israelis, to the nation of Israel. The Jews had a famine. They're God's holy chosen people. How did it happen to them? Still sinners. Still sinners. Look, it is not easy to say, when you're in it, we deserve this. Would you agree with that? I mean, when you're in a struggle, when you're having a hard time with something, when you're in some kind of a pain or a problem or whatever, it is really hard to say, I deserve this, but you do. We should learn this. Do you know why it matters when those troubles come your way and when you're dealing with those issues or people are dealing with it around the world, whatever those major issues, geopolitical issues are around the world? Do you know why it's important for you to realize that they deserve it, that we deserve it? Because it's a reflection of your trust in God. You say, well, uh, this isn't right that this is happening. It's not up to you. I think that would mean it is right that this is happening because God is orchestrating the events. That would make it right that it's happening. We may be incensed by it. We may be crushed by it. We may feel horrible about it. Lots of psalms about that subject, right? Compassion for those that are struggling and in need. Desire to help. Those are all good. Those are good characteristics for us to have. Absolutely. But we shouldn't question why it's happening. It's happening because God wants it to happen. Yeah, but they don't deserve it, really. Who doesn't? Is that person totally righteous? Is that person without sin? I'm sorry, but if I think about it for a second, and you can too, go along with me. Jesus Christ didn't deserve anything bad, did he? See, we we often think, well, yeah, but he had to to endure that sacrifice for us. And he did that for us. Amen. That's absolutely true. Is that the only bad thing that happened to him? Crucifixion? Did he have bad times along the way during his ministry? Were there not times that people were chasing him? Yes. That the crowd was coming after him and he had to escape? Yes. Yes. Yeah, it wasn't all roses for Jesus. Everything didn't go smooth. And we only have a taste, just a taste, of what happened during his ministry in the Gospels. Would you agree with that? We only have just a little sliver. Do you think for a second that the apostles were all perfect and they got along great? That Jesus didn't have to deal with fighting between the apostles or disagreements or disappointments or people being upset or people doubting themselves? Of course he did. Yep, he did. Why? Because they're people. They did not walk around with halos on their head. Remember, the little glimpses we see in their lives is them telling us that they had problems too. They made mistakes. They did things they shouldn't have done. Some of the chiefest apostles... Didn't do the right thing. Remember Peter? Eating with the Gentiles, and then when the Jews come, he gets up and steps away from them, Acts like he had nothing to do with them. He disassociates himself. It was sin. He was called out on it. Wasn't he? This is Peter. Peter. How about Paul? What's he tell us? I don't do what I should, and I do what I shouldn't right how about paul having a falling out with those who are on the journey with him remember twice two separate groups had a falling out with why people sinners don't think well you know those people in the bible they were all you know that's if i could just be like them they had problems just like you They had difficulties. Jesus had to deal with those things, too. You think because he was a man and because he was a God-man that he wasn't emotional when he saw the infighting that would have undoubtedly happened between his disciples or when he saw how hardened people he knew, like his own siblings, by the way, rejected him. Remember that? God is holy, and he will allow and bring things on man when he chooses to exercise his holiness. We deserve always far worse. Did God allow the Nazi empire to rise and to do all the evil things they did? He sure did. How about the Roman empire? He sure did. How about the Greek empire? He sure did. How about the Persian empire? He sure did. All of them. Every time this happens, God uses it. What did it say about Pharaoh? God did what to his heart? Hardened his heart. He caused more evil to happen to the Jews, to the Israelites, while they were in captivity, because it was going to fulfill his will. And guess what his people did? They deserved it. They deserve the badness. How about the exile? Forty years, 40 years wandering the desert. Forty years wandering the desert. You know how long that journey should have taken them? Anybody know? How long that journey should have taken them? Because you do have to allow for the fact that it's such a large group, and they have to stop more often, and they have to find places where they can have water, and they can have places for the cattle to graze, and things like the sheep, and things like this. Does anybody know? There's an estimate. It's shorter than you probably think. Four months. Four months to move the nation of Israel from Egypt to the Promised Land. Four months. They were there 40 years. 40 years. Why did God allow this? Because they deserved it. They deserved it. Let's remember that God is in charge and be content with what he is doing. And not be in anguish because we don't like it. It's his will. It's his holiness in his will. It's a lot of time on that, but important. God's law reflects the holy character of God. God's law reflects the holy character of God. It shows us how sinful and unholy we are. So Why do we have the law? Why do we have the law? Who knows? Just shout it out. All right. Why do we have the law? There's a hint right there. (laughs) Why do we have the law? Nobody? Shows us how much we owe to God and how far we've fallen short of God. Anybody else? That's true. Anybody else? There's more right answers. It's okay. Drive us to Christ. Yeah, that's a good answer too. Because God does things decently in order. All true. Good points. God's law, and we have God's law, because it tells us what someone acts like if they're holy. In this particular context, that's what I'm looking for. You're right. You're totally right. All your answers on that. Totally right. It drives us to Christ. It shows us what it is to be Holy. But that's what it's really, you know, in this particular context of why with a holy God, we're talking about his holiness, what does his law have to do with it? Well, it shows us this is what you need to be holy. And we fail. We violate the law. We fail. Could God have withheld his law from us and still been holy? This is theoretical, (laughs) because he didn't. So it's not like we have to have the right answer on this, but you'd have to answer, look, this is where I'm trying to get you to think. Yes, he would still be holy, even if he didn't tell us what the rules were. Why? He's still God. It's only his mercy that he gave us his law. There's an interesting tidbit for you, little noodle cooker. We have the law of God because God is merciful. What? That seems like the opposite. Like, if we have the law, then we violate the law, so now we're in trouble. If we didn't have the law, then we couldn't violate it, so we wouldn't be in trouble. Nope. If you still do something that's wrong and it violates God's holy nature, you are still sinning. Whether you have the law or you don't have the law. If someone has never read the Bible and they sin, are they still doing something wrong? Is their action that we would call sin still wrong? Yes, they didn't have the Bible. They didn't read the Bible. They didn't know the Bible. They never heard the Bible. But their murder of somebody else is still sin, right? Their lying is still sin. you see what I'm saying? God's law helps us. It's mercy. It shows us what it is to be holy. It's following his law. And when we don't, We deserve affliction. God allowed Jesus Christ to be crucified because of his holiness, God's holiness. A perfect sacrifice for our sin was required. His holy wrath poured out on his son. We'll see some verses about it. You know it's true. God's wrath was poured out on his son for our sins. For our sins. Why? Why was that different? First of all, it's different because he committed no sin. Someone who pays the price for sin who did not commit the sin is worse than someone paying the price for a sin that they did do. Would you agree with me on that? Do you understand what I'm saying there? In other words, when an innocent man is punished for a crime he didn't commit, it's worse than if a guilty man is punished for the crime he committed. Would you agree with that? Yeah. But while it was far worse than that is that Jesus Christ was also God. So he had to willingly take this pain and suffering and punishment on himself. We are called to be holy as God is holy. Christ will perfect us in holiness when he returns, as we talked about a little bit ago. Jesus Christ is the pattern for us as Christians. We are to be striving to be holy as he was holy. The method is faith in Christ and obedience to biblical law for Jesus' sake. That's kind of a summary of what I've already been saying. There is only one standard for holiness, and that is God himself. He will not tolerate unholiness in the creation that he made for his glory. His mercy delays the judgment, but it will eventually come. It will eventually come. So you say, well, what about this bad guy who did whatever he did and he lived a ripe old age before he died? He got away with it. Did he? See, God, God doesn't say that he's going to punish everyone for their sin on earth. In fact, we deserve it. But it's eternal punishment. Eternal punishment. He can chastise us on earth. He can make it not go so well for us on earth, and he does. But eternal punishment is where that true punishment is recompensed, right? Forever. Unending punishment. Okay, ready? Here we go. There's the verses. Okay. <laughs> Are you ready? Holiness, God's holiness. Isaiah 6.3, that's the one footnote you can see there, uh, footnote number 10. So there's one footnote in the confession for this particular section about God being holy. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And who are we talking about here in this passage in Isaiah 6? He's talking about the angels that are actually talking about God on the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So let's read some other verses. You ready? Here we go. Exodus fifteen eleven. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Revelation 4.8, and the four beasts, another view of the throne. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were all full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. So do you understand the picture of this? Just to make sure you get this. This isn't like there's a special event at the throne. In fact, John, when he writes this, tells us specifically, they rest not day and night saying. They are saying this around the throne continuously, unending. Psalm 2.6, and yet yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. We talked about different things that God's associated with, they're all holy. Psalm 47.8, God reigneth over the heathen, God sitteth upon the throne of his holiness. Psalm 5, 7, But as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy, and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Revelation fourteen ten. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. So again, now we see a reference again to God's holy angels. Revelation 18.20, Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. Was he talking about? Babylon. This is a reference to Babylon on the earth. God, In this reference, John is talking about the fact that the apostles who are now in their holy and sanctified position and the prophets who are now in their holy and sanctified position are being avenged. Romans 1.2, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the holy scriptures. Psalm one forty five, seventeen, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. Isaiah forty, eighteen through twenty-two, to whom they will then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? The workman melteth a graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over gold, and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation chooses a tree that will not rot, he seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. Have ye not known, have ye not heard, hath it not been told unto you from the beginning? Have ye not understand from the foundations of the earth? It is he that setteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. That's a big God. That's a big God. Isaiah 57:15 For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity whose name is holy I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones First John 1 John 1:5 That this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all There is no darkness in God why he is holy he is holy. Psalm 5, 4-6. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Why? Why can thou not stand in his sight? Because he is holy. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. Romans 1, 18-32 is a long passage. If you want to turn to it, you can, but you can listen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, have, who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest to them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You understand what this passage is saying? This is an important passage, by the way. It's an important... Pa- They're all important. Okay, I understand that. They're all important. Numbers less important than this passage. Okay. So, why is this so important? Because this is saying that man knows there is a God. The things not seen since the beginning are plainly seen by those created. 21. Because that when they knew God, They glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanliness, through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Pause for a second. This is not just a history lesson. This is true today. It was true then. It was true in the Old Testament. It is true today. Who does man worship today? What is the common thing for man to worship today? Okay, so I'm not talking about believers. I'm talking about mankind in general. Who does mankind in general worship? Themselves. Themselves. And you can understand this is this passage is basically saying they're lying to themselves. They know better. But they're worshiping the creature, the creature, we are creatures, instead of the creator. They have to worship the earth. That's man worshiping the creation rather than the Creator. Are you with me? Let's keep going. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use of that which is against nature, and likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind and to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. That's interesting that that's right there in the whole group, by the way. There's a lesson there without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. And here's the key summary verse of this passage. Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Man knows these things are wrong, and he does them anyway, knowing that they deserve death. They know it. You know what that means? They feel what? What's that emotion that you feel when you sin? Guilt. They feel it, and they still do the same. Not only do they do the same, but they have pleasure in them. They enjoy doing that, which they know is wrong. Nehemiah, God is jealous, one through two, two through eight. God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. That's bleak. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. He will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth, and Carmel, the flower of Lebanon, languisheth. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned in his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation, and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. All right, so if you want to know why is God allowing this bad weather thing to happen, look at that passage. It says he's going to do it. He's going to do it. Romans 19, I'm sorry, twelve nineteen. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-12. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. And from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in His saints, and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his good of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. You know he's basically saying? Bad stuff is going to happen to those who are not following God. And may God's goodness come to you. But you know what? There's no promise of that, is there? In fact, Christ promised his apostles that you will be persecuted for my name's sake. Ephesians 1.4, according as he hath chosen us and him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. His goal for us is to be holy. Titus 2:14 who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. 1 Thessalonians 4:7 for God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but to holiness. Romans 8:29 for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. He chose you to be conformed to the holiness, the image of his Son. You're supposed to be working on this. Ephesians 5.27, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. 1 Peter 1.14-16, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust and your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Isaiah 210 through 22 Enter into the rock, and hide thee in the dust, for fear of the Lord, and for glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled, the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, and upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. And upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, and upon all the high mountains, and upon the hills that are lifted up, and upon every high tower, and upon every fenced wall, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, and all upon all pleasant pictures. And the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. And the idols he shall utterly abolish. And they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. And in that day, a man shall cast his idols of silver, his idols of gold, which they made each one for himself to worship to the moles and to the bats, gonna throw them down the mountain, down the cave to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the tops of the ragged rocks for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty. When he ariseth to shake terribly the earth, cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils for wherein is he to be accounted of? Very interesting that this prophecy in Isaiah so closely matches the prophecy given in Revelation. That men will seek to hide in the, in the rocks for the judgment of God. Second Peter 3.13 Nevertheless, we, according to his promises, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth Righteousness. That's where holiness will be. The righteousness will be there because God is holy. Zechariah 14 20 through 21. In that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord, and the pots of the Lord's house shall be like bowls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts and all that, on all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them, and see if they're therein, and in that day there shall be no more Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Now that's a little obscure in the reading, but the bottom line is, is that God will make all of his people holy. You will be holy. The new heaven and new earth, you will be holy. The Jews didn't see it because they didn't understand that passage of Zechariah. But now, in hindsight, after we got the New Testament, we do understand it. There won't be any Canaanites. Why won't there be any more Canaanites? Because there's not going to be any Canaanites that are saved. They're not going to be in heaven. No believers that are Canaanites? No. Because there won't be any Jews and Gentiles. Not in God's eyes. They're not now. The gospel message and the belief in God is for all men, not just the Jews. In his mercy, he has offered it to us too. We're out of time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time that we've had to review your attributes of holiness and being most infinite. We pray that you'd help us to be mindful of this, to be content with your will being carried out in the earth, that we would know that you were in charge and that what is happening is your will. We pray you us now as we go to worship you in the sanctuary, that we would honor and obey you in all aspects, that we would hear your spirit in our hearts, through the teaching of your word and through the worship and song. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.